Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Pair programming is extremely efficient in certain circumstances, both for improving code quality and for cross-training developers. However, it can be hard to sell the idea to management and to other developers. It can also be hard to get it right, especially if you haven't done it often. In this episode, we're going to discuss the basics of pair programming. We'll talk about how to organize pair programming sessions, deal with problems, and how to sell the idea to management, which is often the hardest part. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Uh, not much of anything. Uh, we've got you know Good Friday coming up, and mm-hmm. so it's a four-day week. And there's kind of a mad scramble to make sure things are stable. Uh, because that's a time when a lot of money comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's right around Easter. But that said, uh, we're not doing a lot of stuff that destabilizes things either. <laughs> and so it's uh, it's been relatively painless. There's been, honestly, a bit more waiting around than I would prefer. Mm. But I'm getting a lot of uh, plural site stuff in. Um, I've gone through like a nine-hour Angular course. I'm going to go through one on uh, database indexing now. Like just things are pretty good. Yeah, there's nothing nothing too special going on. How about you? Uh, well, we are at the end of a sprint. Um, and so, yeah, we got a lot going on. Uh, I've been fighting for acceptance criteria. Basically, different stories for the UI and the API because the API is an internal service, but there's one part that has a little bit of a UI. And so all the API stories have been their own thing. And then we get to this and we're building it very differently. Basically, I had to do about a week's worth of work in a couple of days uh, to get what they needed to not fail the sprint because they built all their stuff. But then they were expecting, they were basically told expect this from the API in their stories. And we were told, provide something different in our stories. That's no fun. Yeah. And then, and some of it was, they were, they were told, you know, pass this in and expect this back. And we didn't have any of that. Like it just wasn't in our stuff at all. And it just got assumed. What, what happened was the BA who wrote the stuff, has a good understanding of things from a UI perspective, but it has struggled with getting things down from a, Hey, there's no UI to this piece and just didn't know, Hey, I need to like tell them they need to have this in there. So I ran into an issue during this, uh, unboxing an array. Well, actually it wasn't so much unboxing the array. I could get the array out of the object. It was, seeing if the object had an array in it because the get type method in, uh, in C sharp returned it as a JSON element. Now I finally figured out that uh, system.txt.json.json element to get all .netty on y'all. 
has an enum property called value kind yep. for each of the types. And I could determine if it was an array by comparing it to the array on the value kind enum. That took the better part of a day to figure out. I was almost to the point, and I, I hate this, this is terrible coding, but I was almost to the point of throwing in a try catch, trying to parse it as an array, and if it if it erred, then doing the stuff that I like the the else. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're forced to do it, mm-hmm. it's not wrong. Yeah, yeah, y'all, y'all can't see the look on Will's face. That was the look I was making when I was typing that code out, and it worked. And I'm like, uh, all right, if I run out of time, because I like had to get it to them so that they could do their part, I was like, if I run out of time, at least I got this. And I can come back and deal with it when I have more time. Um, I, I think the acceptable way to deal with that is to find some ASCII art of a burning dumpster. <laughs> say, they made me do it. It's not my fault. And put that mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Um, I actually found a piece of our code a little while back. That's like, I don't like the, you know, somebody wrote, I don't like the way we had to do this. I bet you $10. You can't do it better. And just left that in the code base. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like something I would do (laughs) because they were just frustrated beyond all hope. And they're just like, you know what? If somebody fixes it, I'll pay them 10 bucks. Yeah. So it works. It works. Yeah. That was that was a pain. Don't even get me started on the issue with the ternary statements within a switch case. Will got a an eyeful because it was text, so I don't know. Earful doesn't seem right with the Hangouts messages, but you know, yeah, he he got got to hear all, I got all plenty. about that. Yeah. Um. So that was that was my uh, work week since our last recording session yesterday. Got Amanda moved into her new place. Uh, it was supposed to be over the weekend, but we had some really nasty weather, so it got postponed. Like Friday, it was decent out, and so her parents and I helped her get most of the smaller stuff, like the small furniture, that kind of stuff, over there with the idea that we were going to rent a trailer and do the bigger stuff on Saturday. And then it was just horrible weather all day long, so we we postponed. Got it done. Didn't take much. She only had about three, three or four big things like her bed or couch, that kind of stuff to take in the trailer. So two of us did that in a couple of hours. But whew, that was <laughs> that was fun. I, I am still tired from that. Fun news. We're getting ready for Easter at church. And Will talked about it Friday being Good Friday. So we got a short week. We're going to have a special Easter medley in the service. So I'm going in Friday night for the practice for that. So I can uh, be on a camera and determine, Hey, what shots do we want to get? How do we want to do this? That kind of kind of stuff. So it'll be a lot of fun. So guys, if you haven't done so already, check out the free or public aftercast from our April 1st episode on being unoffendable. Uh, since we started doing the aftercast, this is our very first April 1st special episode. And we decided to make that publicly available over on Patreon. Check it out. If you like what you hear, sign up on Patreon to get access to all of our aftercasts. You'll often hear about developers, including both of us who regularly use pair programming. The practice of pair programming can be very helpful for sharing knowledge across the team 
working through a difficult chunk of code, or simply showing how your team approaches their daily workflow, especially when working with a new hire. Pair programming also helps team members get to know each other and each other's thought processes, which is very important in our current COVID age where people are working remotely. Yeah, it can be hard to convince management and other developers to allow pair programming. Your typical corporate bean counter, well, will phrases, willisms there, will see the practice as simply doubling the cost of the same piece of work. Project managers will often view the practice as something that jeopardizes project timelines for dubious benefits. Other developers might balk at the idea as well, both because they are self-conscious about the way they write code and because they may find it boring. On that, to almost everyone involved, it sounds like yet another meeting that will chew up part of the day. And as we all know, almost all meetings stink and most people don't like them. In this episode, we'll discuss pair programming, when and why you might want to do it, as well as when you might not want to use it. Then we'll discuss what to do while you're in a pair session. We'll finish by discussing how to sell the idea to people in various roles on your team. Guys, saving money can be hard, whether you are a corporate bean counter or you are just a developer working hard to make a living. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah, just like us, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but also take action to live your best life. Now, guys, investing in a financial planning service really comes down to whether or not you can improve your finances with the help of Level Up. The compounding impact of making better financial decisions will easily pay for itself. Best of all, Level Up has a unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So it's not too early to get started and you don't have to be a bean counter to get by. <laughs> exactly. Guys, you can find some fun, free resources and learn more about Level Up Financial Planning at levelupfinancialplanning.com. So we've broken the episode down into kind of three sections. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about is the basics of pair programming. And to understand the basics, we have to start off with what it is and why you want to do it. Yeah, so... It sounds kind of obvious, but pair programming requires two programmers. Um, if more, it's actually called a mob. And I've done this once or twice, uh, you know, with I think as many as 12 people in the room, like putting it up on a projector and going through something. Not done that. I've done it with three or four. Usually it was like two API and two UI. Yeah, this was, I forget what exactly it was. It was something that was fairly critical. And, oh, I know it was, it was kind of like a, it was a test thing for some standards. Mm. And so we're going to do this and these are going to be the new system standards and we can kind of do that in real code. Yeah. Um, and it's been years, but that's an interesting approach to doing that. I hope to never go through that again because, you know, when you got that many people deciding standards, nothing actually gets decided by those people. <laughs> it's decided by somebody else once they get frustrated enough with all the time it gets burned, but whatever. 
But basically the idea here is you have two programmers and they typically will use a single computer, at least in the pre-COVID days, they would you know sit at the same desk and use a single computer. It's not quite like that now because, you know, COVID, we're not in the same place anymore. Though they they can get a very similar effect with a lot of tools that are out there. Yeah. We emulate it now, which is actually uh, somewhat better because it gives you uh, a few other opportunities while you're doing this. So one developer will you know do the work while discussing what they're doing with the other. The second developer might also have a computer or other device and use it to take notes, look up things for the first developer, review specifications, get a hold of management and go, hey, this isn't clear. We're going to be dealing with this here in a minute. You know, basically the second person can sit there and remove roadblocks for the first one. Yeah. The idea here is that by having the two developers working on a single piece of code, you avoid creating knowledge silos. You also improve the quality of the code you're writing because uh, you have more than one set of eyes looking at it and increase team cohesion by having people actually working together. It's quite interesting. Even before COVID, we were doing this using Visual Studio Live Share mm-hmm. and Teams meetings. So one of us would share our screen we could follow along with the other person, but we'd also share the screen so we could show what we were looking at too. It was quite interesting because I was working with our lead UI developer and he was like getting me up to speed on the newer Angular stuff by having me code it and him like talking me through it. And he was learning the .NET by him working and me talking him through it. Yeah, and... Does Teams uh, work well with, was it Live Share or whatever the Visual Studio pairing deal is? Like, does it hook into Teams? No, it it, okay. it doesn't. We just shared the screen. Okay. I was wondering we, if I've been doing it wrong. That's why I was, it's like, because I, I do that at least once a day. Yeah. No, the, the Live Share is really nice. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it doesn't. You always I know look for of. new stuff. Yeah. I'm going to go look after we get done recording because that never occurred to me. Yeah. Uh, You know, team cohesion from pair programming is often an undervalued result of this process, but it's really important when dealing with remote and distributed teams. I don't know if, you know, I I imagine a lot of our listeners now understand this problem uh, a bit better than they might have, say a year and a month ago to, you know, because you, you have new employees coming in, they're remote. They never really click with the team and then they turn over and everybody's like, what did they do again? And that kind of loss of team cohesion is actually pretty destructive. Like it's also knowledge loss if that person's been there a while. So you really, really want to protect that. And pair programming is one good way to do that. You know, without it being like some kind of corporate, you know, trust fall workshop type deal. It's like you're actually producing value. Even in organizations where, pair programming isn't common. It does often happen. Like Will was saying with onboarding a new team member, uh, there's a lot of that just to get them up to, up to speed on things. Uh, the larger practice of pair programming can be viewed as a long-term extension of this onboarding practice. Yeah. Cause you're just always onboarding. Yeah. And trying to get people more and more adapted to the company mm-hmm. so that when you move, y'all move as one speaking of you know moving along 
figuring out when to pair program is probably one of the most important things. You don't want to do this 100% of the time, you know, or at least you probably aren't going to want to do this. There's probably some companies that try to force it and, you know, get brownie points on Hacker News or whatever, but it's kind of terrible because it's exhausting. Instead, you should be more strategic. Say what? So to an introvert, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I could even see extroverts after three or four hours of it because it's the, you know, it's a meeting. It's an artificial uh, constraint type thing. It, it doesn't allow you to problem solve. It doesn't allow you to do what works best for you. Right. Uh, to problem solve because you're always having to do do it the team way, even if it's just a team of two. Yeah. So you do have to be strategic about when you do it. Um, ideally, you'll only pair program when it actually provides value. Um, so you won't do it just on random crap that comes up. It's stuff that, you know, two people actually makes the process better. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I, I mentioned before about the pair programming sessions I've been doing with our lead UI developer. Uh, one of the big things about pair programming and when it works best is when you're showing another developer something they haven't seen before. So it may be a particularly nasty piece of code that you've written. It may be like our scenario where, you know, I know Angular JS, but I haven't done much past that. And so he's showing me the newer stuff and, you know, it's way better, did, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And he hasn't done, uh, done pretty much any .NET other than just looking at it and consuming .NET APIs. And so he's learning that from me. And so it's it's a nice back and forth. It's been kind of fun to build this little project, um, sort of a side thing. We actually count it as training, and we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about selling the the idea. Yeah, it also works really well when you really do need two people's expertise. So it's not so much training as in people are in two different silos. Mm-hmm. This happens a lot when you port an old system or get the data out of an old system into a new system. You'll have to have both parties on there because you're like, what is this field? I don't know if you've dealt with like really old SQL databases where there was a set of principles with the way people designed things like 20 something years ago where they kept uh, things like field names short and it was like super abbreviated. You you know where I work, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean... That was kind of a facetious comment, really, now that I think there, about there, it. <laughs> there are people I work with who, you know, have continued doing that for the last 20 years. Yeah. And when you deal with those, you're like, what in the world is this field? And, you know, there may not be any documents. The documents may be wrong. Uh, they may not be accessible. Mm-hmm. It, or it may be some field that's like, well, invoice number. Well, it's invoice number unless it's a refund and then it's some other identifier, for instance. And there's like a secondary rule that you don't know anything about. Yeah. And so you get those two people together and pair on something when you're moving data over and you'll probably avoid a lot of the problems that can happen. Yeah. When I started my first job, the upper management was they had had some people who they had asked like in previously had asked them to rewrite a system in like the more modern style and they just caught basically copied it over. Yeah. They told us you're replacing this system, but we're not allowing you to, we're not giving you access to it. We're not allowing you to look at what it does. You have to like 
like we're forcing scrum. You have to go talk to the business people and things like that. The problem was it was a system that had been around for a long time and the people the business gave us to talk to didn't know all the intricacies and ins and outs. They just knew what they worked with and what the people around them like worked with, not the whole aspect. And so like we built what they asked for, exactly what they asked for, and they couldn't use it. Yep. So yeah, that that happens. Yeah. <laughs> happens a lot with older orgs too yeah that's that's what happens when you're not allowed to when you don't do this kind of pair programming yeah and sometimes you you can't because you know things like the licenses yeah are ridiculously expensive or it's a it's a machine that's got sensitive data because stuff isn't partitioned well they want you to test against production because you're just pulling data Mm -hmm. for instance but they don't want to give you real access to see what the guts are so yeah, been there, done that. It's also really good for onboarding new developers, getting them used to your company's processes. Uh, you know, you start out, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, there's, you know, there's a great workflow. And, you know, everybody, you know, we're doing industry standard. There is no industry standard, dude. That's not a, like people say that there's not a thing. You know, some people have continuous deployment. Some people have a batch file that they run once every six months and then manually tweak a bunch of loose files and, FTP it somewhere. Yep. And every company has got little corners of the business that, that have those kind of things still going on, you know, cause really like ghetto shell scripts, uh, you know, processes that are implemented in Excel files, just that stuff is still around. And so when you onboard a new person, either you have to show them your mess or you have to make sure that they know that there isn't a mess because they came from one. Yeah. And so you're going to have to use it to uh, onboard. Finally, pair programming is very effective when you need another developer's help to get unstuck. Yeah. I had this fairly recently. We're implementing a query builder pattern um, over the top of Entity Framework. And we're doing that because we, we initially had repositories. And... Over time, basically what happens is, is your repository methods start including more and more data because they get reused. And somebody's like, oh, I can reuse this and just add this other pile of crap to it that it needs to pull back for this one thing, but there's 20 other places that call it. And so you, you start putting more and more load on the system doing that. And so we're, we're kind of reworking to a query builder pattern, which sounds great until you need to mock it for unit tests. Mm. And you have like this fluent interface that has to be called in a certain order for X unit to play nice. Otherwise you don't get a result or it's like, it's not implemented. And yeah, so I had to, I had to get my team lead in and go, Hey, we've got to find a better way to do this because you know, like you write the code, you're done with the code in 30 minutes. And then you spend the next six hours writing unit tests because it's it's try it. Okay. It blew up. Here's where it blew up. Let me fix that. Oh, it blew up this other way. Oh, I need to fix my, code under tests slightly. Now I've completely eradicated my tests working mm-hmm. and I have to go back and refiddle with it. And so it was just a nightmare and getting another pair of eyes on there going, Hey, I've seen some stuff in X unit that you can do or not X unit in mock to mock this differently mm-hmm. and you know, like restructuring mock. things. It's yeah. It's, it's great, but against a query builder type pattern or really a fluent interface just in general. 
you have to really think about how you structure stuff and you have to structure your test differently so that you mock it in a way that you don't break it next time you introduce a new test. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I've I've faced those issues. Yeah. Even with a repository pattern, I've, I've faced some of those issues. I'll be honest with you, though, dude. When I saw in here, he has a note, Will's story about mocking and getting help from a team lead. I literally thought that he was making fun of the team lead to get his help. Well, because that would be Will's style of getting help from someone. That, that is what I did. But, um, <laughs> and, and, and yeah, Zach's a listener. So, you know, he's, he's, he'll, he'll hear this here in another few months. I think he's like 70 or 80 episodes behind us now. So he'll catch up right. and he'll hear this and he'll laugh. But, yeah, hello, Will's team lead. How are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So now that we've talked about when you want to pair program, we're going to kind of quickly go through when not to pair program. It's really difficult to pair program when the two developers involved don't get along. They have a major language barrier or they don't use similar technologies to do their job unless one of them is trying to learn the technology used by the other. Right. So, for instance, if you've got a guy that's a old school Win32, you know, desktop app developer, and you're doing Angular stuff, and they kind of have contempt for the web, which I've, I've encountered, uh, you can't pair program with this person because they, they're not going to learn anything and they're just going to be looking down their nose at the way you do stuff. And I've seen it go the other way too. Yeah. Another time that you don't want to pair program is when you don't have a clean way to share a screen and to give control to the other party. You know, some security setups make this difficult, especially when you're remote. I know we mentioned Visual Studio Live Share, which is great because you're you're not giving them, this is the thing I love about it, you're not giving them, you know, remote access to your computer. They have an instance of your code that relates to you, but it's only like through Visual Studio. So they can't access anything else on your machine. So nice. I really, really like that. Yeah, my favorite is when you are having to use a VPN to connect so that you can RDP into your machine. The other person is using a VPN to connect to RDP into their machine. And basically things are set up so that they can't hit your RDP'd instance from theirs. Mm -hmm. And you can't screen share. Like there's, there's some weird setups that you can get into where it's like, yeah, I can't show you the code. I can copy and paste it somewhere. And that's the best I can do. It's pretty terrible, but it is a thing that used to happen a lot more. I imagine the companies that had that kind of setup now are really, really hurting from it. And they'll eventually go away because it's dumb. Now, when either party is completely overloaded with a totally different task, you know, where the pair programming would be a burden, that's also not a good time to pair. Uh, when people have a whole lot of pressure on them, pair programming is unlikely to be a positive experience because of the stress level. Oh, yeah. And I, I will say this is one of the things I really appreciate about the lead developer I'm working with. Uh, will knows him personally, too. And like, it's it's a great setup because we do, if it's either one of us has something they have to do, like we have a regularly scheduled, like honestly, it's Tuesday afternoons and we've just agreed, hey, the Tuesday before a product review, 
we're not going to pair. And then we'll, there'll be other times where we're just like, Hey, we're, it might be an hour before the one of us reaches out to the other and be like, Hey, I am slammed. Can we skip this week? And that happens, you know? Yeah, it's perfectly normal. Also don't pair program when your session is likely to be interrupted at random intervals. You really need a long period of focus time in order to pair program. So like if you're at home, you're working, you're working remote and you are the sole caregiver for a small child, you're probably not going to be able to pair program effectively. Yeah. Because that's what they do. They interrupt at random. Or if you're having construction done on your house, you know, that's another good example. Or you're waiting for phone calls or whatever. You know, bear in mind that yes, if it's just five minutes away, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's actually an interruption for two people, you know, in a situation where you're kind of already at a disadvantage as far as the bean counters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way that they look at it. So it, it's very expensive and it just, it creates a lot of stress and you're, you're not going to do well. Yeah. Now that we've talked about the basics of pair programming, we're going to talk about sort of what to do while you are pair programming you know, talk about some issues you might run into and just understanding the process in general. So first off, I think the most important thing when you're doing this is who should be in control. Yeah. Now it is generally a cooperative effort, but somebody is driving the computer and this tends to be a position that has a lot of control. Although you do need to make sure the other party has input. It can also be a little bit difficult to decide who this person should be. Uh, you know, sometimes one person wants to do it and the other doesn't. And so theoretically, that's easy. Of course, sometimes it should be the person that doesn't want to do it that does it. A lot of times it should. Yeah. Let's be honest. Uh, though, if you look at my situation, it would be a lot easier and faster for me to do the .NET code and for him to do the Angular code. But that's not the purpose of the session. Right. The session is for the other person to grow and learn. You know, we're, we're helping each other out by not doing the thing that we're good at and instead sitting back and guiding. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. Now, if both people want to control the pair programming session, then you should choose the person based on the goal of the session. Like I said, our goal was training. So that's how we picked that. Uh, see, sort of an obvious choice in that. Is the goal to get something done, to teach one person something? Your goal should drive the selection of the person who drives the computer. That's that's the key here. Yeah. And then if neither person wants to do it, you should spend some time examining why. It may not be a good time to pair. Like, you know, we were just talking about, you know, when not to pair. This might be one of those times not to pair. Or you may not have defined the purpose well enough like you don't have a good goal so go back and reassess your goal and it may be that you just both need a break and possibly some coffee yeah those are first thing in the morning pair programming sessions yeah, that's why mine's in the afternoon <laughs> yeah when those happen mm-hmm. it, invariably there is one party that really needs about two cups of coffee to be useful you know, yeah. at the beginning of the day, unless you're both morning people. Um, and I don't have the impression that most of the population is, even though a, a large portion of the population lies and says that they are. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit what I see. I'll just put it that way. 
Yeah. Well, it's they're morning people. They're just also addicted to coffee. Yeah. Well, so am I, but you know, I don't know. It's the fatigue thing first thing in the morning can be an issue. It can also be an issue right after lunch. Yeah. Uh, that's another time that really doesn't work well for pair programming. You also have to pay attention uh, as far as the control um, and consider when you're going to switch places. Uh, one person should probably not be driving the whole time. There's cases where this is not a bad idea, but for the most part, you know, I, I would say that you need to switch. You know, programming session is very long. One person being in control the entire time is going to make them tired and it's going to make the other person bored. So instead, you want to change hands. Usually when somebody gets tired or they start getting stuck, you know, they start making mistakes or they, you know, they can't think through things. It's because they've been looking at the screen too long and trying to essentially do coding as a performance art. So switch off and, you know, take the pressure off of them. Uh, And you might also do it when the task is better suited to the other person. Yeah, that's that's the thing we do. I think like an hour and a half sessions. Well, we have an hour and a half blocked off because let's be honest, you know, the first 30 minutes, we're just catching up because we're friends. And like, since I moved in COVID, we haven't seen each other. So like, it's more of like just a 30 minute hangout session followed by like an hour of really intense coding training. And so it's it builds team cohesion and it's good. But we usually don't switch because we're typically attacking one task. Um, either a UI task or an API task. And what's fun is we went and because we're we're playing around with like Azure DevOps and stuff, and we went and like created tasks and like stories and everything for these. And so we'll we'll tackle one well, not one task, usually one story, and knock out all the tasks under that. So it'd be like a UI story or an API story, and we'll switch between sessions. So it'd like one week. I'll be doing a bunch of UI the next week. He'll be doing a bunch of API. Yeah. So that's pretty workable. Uh, um, what I do with my team lead, a lot of times he ends up driving. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, is I have a large screen. Yeah. And sharing is very, very weird on teams. If you're not sharing a full screen, because it's like, okay, I've got to switch between windows every time I switch a window, which doesn't sound like a big thing until you realize that apparently the target window handle changes when visual studio runs. Hmm. And so it's like, okay, I typed in the code, let's run it and, you know, see, you know, like look at the build output or whatever. And yeah, he can't see it anymore or breakpoints. And like, I have to unshare, run the thing, share and go back in. And you do that time after time and it gets old. Whereas he's just on one screen and it's a smaller, screen and so i can blow it up on mine and see it we can work through everything and so that's why we typically don't switch as there's a technological issue there with teams that i hope they fix but they haven't yet yeah that makes sense now you mentioned it already the person driving will eventually get tired the thing about that is it happens a lot faster than you think it would because it is it's a it's a performance you're like i i like to tell people like i use the term you're on and like it, you know, my personality, like Will does. And you guys as listeners, you, you, you know it from listening. Yeah, you're probably aware <laughs> yeah, of my personality. I turn off like in the evenings. I, 
I am not as boisterous and as hyper and stuff. Like it's who I am, but also I need to like wind myself down. And as an extrovert, I, I remember telling my sister, like, I'm like, I just, I'm peopled out. I need a break. And she's like, but you're an extrovert. You get energy from that. I'm like, yeah, you like going out in the sun. You live in Florida. You like going out in the sun. What happens if you spend too much time in the sun? You get burned. I'm getting burnt out. <laughs> I need a yeah. old. I remember telling Amanda, I was like, I just need to shut down. I just need to turn off. We were on a road trip somewhere and she was like, okay. And I did. And like, after we got to our next stop at the gas station, I got out and I was like, thanks for letting me do that. She's like, that was the freakiest thing ever. What you being quiet. Yeah. (laughs) 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 But yeah, like, and, and so that's what I think of when you're talking about like getting tired is like, that presentation i mean you and i we do two hours of it every tuesday night where we do an hour of the podcast and then basically an hour of the aftercast and after that i'm i'm spent yeah there's nothing in the tank yeah because i mean i could if i had to i could keep going but i like i know i gotta get up tomorrow and i've got a bunch of meetings tomorrow so i'm like as soon as i'm done with this i'm gonna go and now, this is a time when I do watch TV because I just I can zone out and, you know, just sort of whatever. Not have to think about it. Yeah. Anyway, we're we're a bit off topic here. So <laughs> sorry about that, man. Yeah. I can't imagine us getting off topic. Yeah. So switching places doesn't mean that you stop doing anything. Instead, it means that you should be doing things like looking up supporting documentation using chat tools to talk to stakeholders or taking notes along the way. You also should be helping the person who's actively doing the work and paying attention to what they're doing. I've literally been in pair programming sessions where I wasn't the one coding. And it was, it was one of those things where we're both API developers and we're working through a tough problem. And the other guy was writing a for loop and messed up. Yeah. Because we had, we had been so deep in like, this trying to figure out this difficult problem that he was just trying to quickly write a for loop to test it <laughs> and messed up. I'm like, uh, hey. and that's what the, that's what your other person should be doing. They're like, they're kind of like watching over your shoulder to make sure you don't make mistakes and to like to be there for that. But they're also going like, sometimes you're coding. You're like, wait, what's this supposed to return? Is it is it supposed to return an array or just a string? And I have something else for the array. And you have to go look it up. Well, they can be looking that up for you. And the other thing, too, is it kind of takes the pressure off of it feeling like a performance, which yeah. makes you less tired less quickly. Um, True. So you'll make the other person tired if you don't do anything. Yeah. It's, it's weird how that works out, too. Uh, the idea here is that one person's working while another is sanity checking what they're doing you know, keeping track of ancillary stuff, et cetera, that keeps the work moving, uh, keeps both people informed on what is going on and keeps productivity high enough that the pencil pushers slash bean counters slash killers of joy in accounting don't notice it as much if that's a problem. Yeah. So on these lines, the next thing we're going to talk about is taking breaks. If you're doing a longer pair programming session, like, you know, multiple hours or a day long session, 
it's better to schedule these before the session if possible, because this avoids the awkwardness of people having to ask for bathroom breaks and stuff like that. I don't have a problem just standing up. Yeah, I'll just like straight up say I got to I got to go bio. Yeah, <laughs> I've played I'll, enough video I'll, games. It's fine with me. I don't care. Yeah, I mean, I have IBS, so I got used to saying I got to step out for a moment and nobody questions it. They're usually pretty good about like, all right, cool, especially in a longer like day long session. I've done some of those right before a product release where we were just doing like it's usually me and the UI developer and we're just going through and we're doing a bunch of tweaks, a bunch of like it's usually like about two or three weeks out. And it's all the little things that have accumulated that they want to, all right, can we fix this? Can we do that? And just like get these polish stuff. See, I, I've had some of those long ones where the breaks were not scheduled. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that is, is you try to negotiate with it. We'll take a break right after this piece is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can remember being on one and like having to pop my hip. Cause it's causing, you've seen me do that, right? Like I do yeah. the dancer's pose, which, you know, when I had like the full beard was a lot more impressive to people because it cause <laughs> you don't look like you're going to be able to do that. And, you know, like having to actually get up and, and go, look, I, I've got it. I've got pain in my left hip. I've got to pop this, you know, get this back like it's supposed to be right now. And it typically works better if the breaks are planned so that you don't have to have those kind of awkward <laughs> type of conversations like what are you doing yeah you know and plus you you do kind of need to get away from the screen after a while too like it it's bad on your eyes and everything else mm-hmm. you should be doing that anyway and as you know as a team you need to coordinate to keep that happening yeah now the other thing is both people in the session probably have other responsibilities and so it is important to balance those requirements with the requirements of the session whatever you do Don't let the other stuff fall apart while you're pair programming. This is why when the lead developer I work with and I do it, we're we're very cognizant of, hey, we've got this hour and a half blocked out for doing this. And we're going to tackle like one story at a time that can fit in this. Now, sometimes we'll get into it and it'll be easier than we thought. Or I'll have picked up enough that I'm like, I'm knocking it out. And he's like, all right, well, let's start the next one. And if we don't get finished, we'll finish it next time. Yeah. There've been a few cases where we, neither one of us had anything as before this current project we're on started while we were still in like the requirements gathering phase. So we had the whole afternoon and sometimes we take two or three hours and just, you know, hammer stuff out. It was fun and learned a lot, but yeah, we, we definitely took some breaks during those days. And Finally, don't be overly focused on productivity. While it is important, if you aren't used to pair programming, it's more important to avoid burning out um, or creating interpersonal problems than it is to be productive. Tempers tend to rise when people are stressed. So be aware of this. You know, there have been times, and I'm not going to joke, where one or the other of us have been really frustrated about something And we spent a good portion of our pair programming session just talking about it. You know, sometimes, sometimes you just need a, an understanding ear to listen to you vent. And sometimes you need someone that you trust to go. Yeah, but I I understand the frustration, but you were kind of in the wrong there too. 
you know, and it's good to have those those conversations. And when you've got like the code to focus on, sometimes you can kind of have those conversations on the side while you're doing the coding. And it's it's not as intense, I guess. Yeah, because you're distracted from the interpersonal thing that you're trying to solve by the code. And so you don't Mm -hmm. you don't flare as much. Uh, I've noticed that as well. It's it can actually be pretty helpful. Finally, you need to know when you're done. Uh, The most important thing to learn when doing anything uh, besides knowing when to start is knowing when to stop. While pair programming is useful, it really only works for kind of short bursts. Past that point, it gets really tiring and your ability to get things done falls off a cliff, frankly. Yeah. When the breaks stop being effective, um, for instance, if you're as tired after the break as you were before it, it's probably time to stop for the day. Uh, A lot of developers feel like they can code really long bursts alone. I have some doubts about that, but you know, sometimes it's right if you really enjoy the work you're doing and you don't have any roadblocks. But you'll find that a lot of introverted developers tire out a lot quicker when pairing, and they can't do that. Hey, I have paired with another extroverted developer. I bet that was horrible. <laughs> well, you guys probably know him. He used to have a podcast associated with ours. Yeah. But yeah, and... I don't know that he would call himself an extrovert, but he he was an extrovert. Let's be honest. Like I've seen yeah. him around people, but uh, it was intense because, you know, you got two extroverts and our trouble was staying on task because we're friends too. You know, once we got, once we got that down, we were building, uh, we were doing a proof of concept for um, an Alexa skill to demo at uh, one of our dev chats. And that was that was a lot of fun once we got got our focus and and stuff, because like it was new to both of us. We had been in the same uh, same class or uh, what are they called at conferences? Classes? I forget. It's session. So long. Session. Thank you. That's the word I couldn't think of. <laughs> uh, I, I really dude. I'm just well, like, they're, they're you not know, classes, but we've been in the same one. Honestly, at Music City, Tech. what you just did right there is something that you'll have happen. Yeah, pair programming session where it's like, I can't remember what is that called? Mm -hmm. And if you're alone, you'll just blank for 15 minutes trying to figure out what it is. And the other guy be like, "Uh, it's a session, bro. Yeah, I won't just blank. I'll do this thing called Google. Yeah, well, it's it's fun (laughs) when you can't come up with how do I search for that? Because I don't really know what that's called. Oh, well, yeah, I suppose. Anyway, so we'd both been in the same session. And so we had the same starting point, but... We we would take turns. One of us would code, and the other one would go out and look stuff up while we were working on this, and that was that was fun. But yeah, even extroverts, I don't want to say we got tired of each other, but sometimes it's just like, all right, I might want to be around uh, around people. I just need to like just that one on one. Yeah, we were talking like tempers flare. It wasn't that we were getting mad at each other or anything like that. It was just like, all right, we're starting to get on each other's nerves, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you can always see it coming, like, you know, especially if you've worked with somebody for a while, like the the body language that yeah. that comes up, you know, like I I worked with another developer and you you could see like his jaw muscles just slightly start tightening up when he was getting annoyed. And you mm-hmm. better pick that one up. <laughs> because yeah. like he you know, that was one on the scale, ten was the next. <laughs> yeah. It's 
the other thing is if you you do have a major problem that comes up that you have to stop to address, you probably have to stop for the day. Yeah. If you have to step away for two or three hours, you're probably done for the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you lose context and, and, you know, when this happens, it's also really rare in a corporate environment where one big problem comes up and you solve it and there isn't like a swarm of little problems with it. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Now, if you are doing remote pair programming and communication issues start coming up, that's another reason to stop. We've we've had that where um, one or the other of us have had internet getting slow and just like spotty. Uh, we had that a few weeks ago on the podcast and we had to stop and re-record the aftercast a week later because of it. Yeah. So that that happens. That happens. All right, guys. So our final section here is selling it to leadership. We're going to talk about management and then specifically project managers. So first off, how to sell this to management. If you don't have to ask, it's generally better that you don't. We're lucky our management is pro pair programming but so ours. we we didn't have to ask because we were able to say hey this is training we're we're making our developers this is cross training and so it's like we're making our developers better and we just we both log it as training hours yeah i've worked in places where they did not value that yeah i believe that uh, because they considered developers disposable essentially mm-hmm. and you had to sneak you know you had to go oh, you know can i get another pair of eyes on this and not ask management go oh, i just ask him for some help real quick and they like to see that they like to see the collaboration but they don't like to be asked for the collaboration because now they're approving it and it feels like they're on the hook for it yeah oh that's big that's big yeah now if you want to sell the idea long term wait until you have a particularly painful problem then suggest pairing on it it's easier to justify in these kind of circumstances. And if you can prove it works there, you're more likely to be able to get approval for it in less dire situations in the future. I have the opposite experience with this, um, not for pair programming, but where management put us all in a conference room to solve a problem. And the reason the problem got solved is because couple of us worked a lot of extra hours at home on it and management didn't see that so the next time an issue came up like upper management was like hey should we should should we reserve a conference room and get everybody together in it and they were told thankfully we had a good manager who was like you know why it worked last time because these three guys all spent probably six or seven hours a week on their own time at home working on it and you want them to actually, this is before we were remote. He's like, you want them to actually get this done? Send them home. Give them a week off and tell them like not off, but a week at home working remote and they'll knock this out. Yeah. And I used a similar strategy in my book, actually, you know, about convincing management to let you work remotely. Yeah. Catch them when it's under duress or catch them when it's harder to argue against testing something. Now, make sure that if you talk to management about this, um, that both parties are involved in the conversation 
and both have useful observations. You know, if just one person talks, management is very likely to think that the other one is just sitting around watching and not really doing anything. Yeah. Um, just be aware that people kind of have the idea. I don't know if you remember if you watched Game of Thrones or not, but the guy Littlefinger, you know, when he would see something, he's like, what is the worst reason somebody would do what they're doing? And then he would run with that. And it worked for him because everybody in that show was a jerk pretty much. And you'll deal with those kind of people in management too, where they're like, oh, well, this person's not saying anything. So obviously they just sat there like a lump. Yeah. So just be aware of that. Speaking of sitting there like a lump, project managers sometimes have a whole nother set of problems with this. They tend to be really reluctant to allow pair programming, especially when there is a certain amount of throughput that is already expected in a typical sprint. They will see pair programming as a direct threat to throughput, and it can be over the short term, to be honest. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about it is, yeah, you're you're taking up the time of another developer. Now, if you're smart about it, if the project man- manager is smart, they'll understand that it's like an eight-hour workday is not eight hours of development. It's closer to five or six. At most. Like once you added, yeah, uh, of like an intense day is. And so uh, they'll understand that. And you can say, yeah, the pair stuff is going on in the those hours that aren't considered effective programming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can you can play with the numbers there for them and that that does help. Um the thing is just like with your regular managers, assuming they aren't the same person, which does happen sometimes, the workflow is probably best executed by working together and then making the project manager aware of what you learned and the upsides you saw. So like the idea here is to tell them like here's what we're gaining out of it here's the business value of doing this and that's a big thing yeah and don't ask permission you know ask forgiveness if you have to uh, again if this person's not in your chain of command you do have some leverage here that you should be using mm-hmm. uh, because a lot of them don't know how to code and you need to be aware of that there is a bit of a uncomfortable dynamic here especially if the project manager reports to the same manager that you do and productivity happens to drop because they're going to focus on the pair programming session, even if something else was the problem. Yeah. I mean, they're going to, they're going to look at the thing that's different yeah. or that they consider is wasting time. Um, even though it's not, they might consider it that way. Then if you're like a lot of teams, your productivity bottleneck is not going to be development. Uh, pair programming may actually ease pressure on the bottleneck by lowering your current work in progress count, which means the stuff downstream from you can perform more effectively. Like you may see that work in progress decrease is not reflected at all in a throughput decrease downstream because you're basically taking some of the pressure off. Usually where I've seen it, it's been QA. It's like development gets a bunch of stuff done and then QA is the bottleneck because they have to test every little thing that development did not just the the happy path but all the other paths that they can think of and so by reducing the the pressure on top of them you might actually get them working faster and better because they're not feeling as much pressure and get like an increase down the line pair programming is a useful way to improve code quality 
cross-trained team members, and onboard new developers quickly without boring training. In addition to making it easier to solve more difficult problems, it also helps with team cohesion and helps people understand how other team members think. Best of all, if done properly, it may not negatively impact your team's throughput. It could even improve it. And that pretty much wraps us up. Beach, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? So at the beginning of the episode, I talked about the issue we had with the our UI and our API stories being a little bit different and the expectations differing. You know, the, the requirements were there for the UI, but not the API. And I just want to say, guys, when you're working on a team or even just with one other person, such as pair programming, communication is key to everything being successful. This means that you need to have the ability to listen to the other person. And sometimes like we get really attached to our code. It's like, you know, that's an extension of me. We need to be able to pull away from that, set our feelings aside to resolve any issues that they may have. For example, your code may be working absolutely perfectly. You know, you've tested every possible thing. It is absolutely working exactly the way you designed it, exactly the way it's supposed to be. But it's not functional because of how it interacts with theirs or how they need to consume it if you're an API uh, developer. The thing about this is it also means being open to a dialogue about the situation. Instead of saying, this is what the code does with finality, you could say, this is what the code does now. What do you need from it? What do you need it to do? To open up that discussion and determine what all needs to be adjusted. Now, mind you, if you get a message at 1030 on a Friday night and it's for new development, you can just say, hey, this is what it does. We can discuss it Monday, which is what I had to do the other day. <laughs> sometimes it will your, be your code that needs to be adjusted other times it will be their expectations that need to be adjusted and guys that's pretty much all i've got check out the aftercast there are several points that will had in here that we did not get to because we didn't have time and so uh i think it's going to be a really good one talking about who you pair with um, and bringing other people in and the other developers involved in selling the idea to them. So it's going to be a great show. Check it out. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash complete developer podcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at complete dev pod, like our page on Facebook and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.